Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, sorting through the confusion on hate speech. What is actually being proposed? What would and wouldn't be illegal? And what difference would it make? You can almost incite violence with any statement, so it's, it's a very hard thing to crack down on. Then we've got Kiwi Bank. What about Kiwi Market? And for the first time in 50 years, we can show you pictures from a groundbreaking Kiwi excursion in China. We, we had freedom to wander around the streets wherever we went. We, we weren't restricted in terms of where we went. We'll have that interview shortly, but first, of all the legislative changes the government's pursuing this term, hate speech laws are among the most contentious. Submissions will close this week on the discussion paper that would move hate speech into the Crimes Act and increase the criminal penalties for those who offend. But where is the threshold for what constitutes a crime? So far, the government's refusing to be drawn on specific examples. It hasn't published wording for the criminal offence, which would have perhaps made it clearer. And even though the discussion document explicitly says political opinion could constitute a protected group, at the same time, Cabinet says political opinion will be ruled out. Confused? You're not the only one. Here's Fina Owen. How would you define hate speech? Like racism and homophobia, transphobia, that sort of stuff? Just belittling them kind of thing. That's what I consider as hate speech. If something is said that really hurts you, that is hate speech. What it does, not so much what it is, but what it does to other people. One person might see it as inciting violence and the other might not see it that way, so it's kind of hard to define. Bad things, it's a lot of bad things that they wish and they wish and they wish. I think some of the stuff that Brian Tomaki says um, could be considered hate speech. Terms or slurs or phrases that are used to specifically target a minority group, especially like recently how like the poster was put up, put up by a anti-trans group. If I, for example, I think it's, if I said she, she was five foot four, so basically a short ass, i.e. me. Um, Do you think that's hate speech? Well, I, do, I think it's offensive and I think it could incite violence. Hate speech is no good. Hey, I don't think you'd like to be called a <laughs> I don't think I can run that. I'm gonna have to bleep that. Oh yeah, okay. But I'm being, uh, like I said, that's hate speech, there we are. Can I ask you whether you have been the victim of hate speech ever? Um, absolutely, yes. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, it's a very common thing, especially with queer people, to be targets of that sort of thing. Oh, definitely, even being Māori. I mean, I've got lots of tāmoko and stuff. Do you think it's a good idea that the government is putting in place the, the hate speech laws? Yes as long as it's well written. I'd be interested to see what the what that looks like. Uh, it definitely needs to be debated in Parliament. And I'm sure uh, the likes of David Seymour, um, I'd like to see what he says, because I think that um, he doesn't draw a line. It has to be clear, concise, so that everybody knows exactly where we're going. I feel like when violence is incited, it has to be pretty clear, yeah. and that you can almost incite violence with any statement. So it's. It's a very hard thing to crack down on, so 
I'm not sure if it will actually work. You've got to be very clear in your wording if you're going to make that a criminal offence to add charges for stuff like that. The wording's got to be very precise in what you say and what you can't say so people are aware of what they actually can and can't get charged for. Now, with the discussion document out for consultation, we wanted to interview the Justice Minister to get a clear sense of what the government actually wants to achieve. But Chris Farfoy told us he will not be interviewed on the subject at this time. Barrister Stephen Price has been carefully considering the proposals and is with us this morning. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Uh, kia ora. I just want to begin with some really simple questions for anyone who's feeling a bit confused by all of this. Do we need new hate speech laws? I'm not sure that's a really simple question. Um, I guess you have to ask what hate speech laws we've got at the moment. We've got a range of things, and mostly the discussion has been centering around the, the criminal provision. And at the moment, that only relates to racial hate speech. And you'd have to ask, well, what is it that we want our hate speech laws to do? And I think there's probably three things that we want to, to tackle, and, and they're the harms that are done by hate speech. And one of them is... And at one level, it, it can cause people to act violently or to discriminate against particular minorities. And there's evidence that when there's hate speech, uh, particularly online, that actually correlates with hate crimes going on at the same time in the real world. Um, the other thing that can happen is uh, the psychological and mental effect on victims. And that I, it's, it's difficult for people like me to understand because I haven't been the target of hate speech. Um, but it can have very serious psychological harms on people. It can cause them to you know, doubt themselves. It can cause them to withdraw from society and not speak up, to avoid people, to avoid places. Um, it's, it's definitely something that happens and, and is happening, and we have evidence of that as well. And the third thing is, it's, it's a more esoteric thing, but laws against hate speech say something about what we as a society want to be. We want to be a society where people belong and feel they belong and don't feel that they are disparaged just because they are different. Mm. So, coming back to your question, do, do our laws uh, tackle those things? I think no. <laughs> um, it's pretty clear. The government thinks so. Pretty much everyone thinks so. The minority communities who have been consulted think so. Um, our hate speech law that's aimed only at racial hate speech has only been used once and maybe twice in, the, in its entire 40 or 50 year period. Yeah. Um, so I, our current laws don't seem to be working. Yeah, one of the curious questions I have about all of this, Stephen, is whether or not we can actually legislate for the society we want to be in this space. And let's have a look at the wording that has been published in the discussion sure. document so far, because this might help to make it a little bit clearer. The law would change so that a person who intentionally incites, stirs up, maintains or normalises hatred against any specific group of people based on some or all of the characteristics listed in the Human Rights Act would break the law if they did so by being threatening, abusive or insulting, including by inciting violence. What do you think of that wording? Well, it's pretty similar to the, uh, the cr hate crime, hate speech crime law that we've got at the moment. Um, and in fact, in some ways, it's going to be a little bit harder to prove, as the Royal Commission said. But when you look at it, there's, there's three elements to it. It's got to be aimed at a, a minority group, and the government's asking which minority groups we should have. At the moment, it's about race. The Royal Commission said, silly to exclude religion, and surely they're right about that. There's then debate about whether we should have age and disability and sexual orientation and gender issues as well in there. Mm -hmm. um, it's also got to be threatening or in, uh, insulting or abusive language. And then it's also got to be 
uh, you've got to show in order to prove that there's a crime that there's an ins- a, the person intended to incite hatred. Mm. Those are pretty difficult things to prove, and that's probably why we've had so few successful prosecutions. In fact, there have been not very many successful prosecutions in some of the Australian jurisdictions as well. It's all a question of thresholds, though, isn't it? And without specific examples where we can say, yes, absolutely, this is hate speech that would constitute a crime, and no, this doesn't meet the standard, it's very uh, very difficult to know exactly what is being proposed. So from that language, the language that's been published in the discussion document, by way of example, do you think that Israel Folau's tweets on um, the, the on the, the rainbow community and, and and homosexual people would be considered hate speech. Well, let's go through. The, I, I, I think probably not. Let's go through the elements. It's definitely targeted mm. at a minority group. If we're going mm-hmm. to include sexual orientation, which I think we probably will end up doing, is his is his texting insulting, abusive, or threatening? I think that's arguable. But I mean, he he was saying gay people will go to hell. In other contexts, he's actually supported gay people and he says he doesn't hate mm. them. Um, it's arguable, but could it be shown that he intended to spread hate by what he was saying? I think that's a very tough sell and it seems very unlikely to me, especially when you throw in the, our right to freedom of expression in the Bill of Rights Act, which is kind of an overlay on this offence. And anyone who tries to prosecute for hate mm. speech is going to have to also deal with the issues of free speech, the legal issues of free speech associated with it. So I think it would be extremely unlikely for Israel Folau to be prosecuted. What about if I were to hypothetically publish a column saying that boomers were responsible for many of the problems in the world? Um, uh, well, again, the first question I'm going to be is, is, is age going to be one of the grounds for discrimination? I think it, it, it's certainly under discussion. If it is, then... My answer is still going to be no, because, mm. I mean, is that really insulting, threatening or abusive? I'm not I'm going to depend on the wording of your column. Mm. Um, mm. If it says they're all they're coming to get our money and spend it on themselves and, you know, they're an abomination in the eyes of the Lord and they should all be taken out the back and shot or something like that, yeah. then maybe it reaches that level. Um, is it an intent to spread hatred? Usually in the sort of column you're talking about, it's a discussion of policy and politics. It's always going to be hard at a practical level for discussion that's political like that or or religious aimed at a criticism of religion or genuine like that to be the subject of a successful prosecution. I have one more example and and I'm very much putting you on the spot here so I appreciate you may not be able to take a firm position on it but but what if someone were to publish a tweet saying that for example trans women are not women? Trans is one of the hard areas. Okay, well, it's aimed at trans women, so again, if they're one of the categories that we're going to stick in the law, then that's Mm. going to satisfy that. Is it threatening or abusive or insulting? Could well be there. It's hard to tell in that context what discussion you're playing into. But this is the point, I mean, you have to prove that the person who did it was intending to spread hate. Mm. But this is is the point, though, 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 isn't it? That that it's very, very difficult to, to assign a threshold short of it clearly right. incites violence, for example. Yes. And there's going to be a tension between a law that has the possibility of actually capturing hate speech that is harmful and doing some good, which will have to be somewhat flexible, and a law that is precisely defined as closely as we can that's going to exclude some situations that, are, um, that we might actually really want to punish. So, so is there any way of having a clear and distinct threshold short of the incitement of violence so that people can know for sure what constitutes a crime and what doesn't? I don't think so. <laughs> I haven't been able to think of one. But I, I, 
I want to say that even if you could come up with something that was clear and that captured the things you really wanted to capture and maybe mm. not the other things, um, you've still got some other problems with a, with a hate speech law if you pass it. And uh, one of them is that it's, it could create martyrs. It could spread the, the message that, in fact, you're trying to tackle here. And it could create sympathy for the person who is... Um, who is spreading the hate speech. Mm. And another thing, we've, and we found this around the world, is that um, hate speech laws are often used to prosecute the very minorities that it is designed to protect. So the people who are getting prosecutions against them in countries like France and other European countries where they have hate speech laws are um, imams from uh, Muslim imams mm. and um, sometimes gay people who are... Uh, attacking religions for attacking them um, because it's 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 hard when you are critiquing religion not to have that critique reflect on the adherence of the religion um, so it's possible that these this this hate speech law will end up doing more harm than good even if it's well designed should we pursue it then well, it's worth talking about, um, but it's also t worth talking about along with a whole range of other potential solutions. I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about whether it's mm. going to make much difference, whatever we do with it, because it's got to be pitched at a pretty high level. It's seldom been used. There's not much reason to think it's gonna, going to be used in the future. Mm. But look at the Christchurch call. Um, there is a national action plan on, uh, on tackling racism that's being developed. We might uh, uh, tweak our laws of um, censorship laws. Um, and... Actually, other things that are non-legal, I suspect, are going to have a much bigger effect. I mean, mm. Sonny Bill Williams making the All Blacks being a Muslim and the Prime Minister putting on a hijab after the Christchurch shooting. I suspect that's had a massively greater effect than anything, any tweaks to our, uh, our hate speech crime law. If we do pursue these laws and the government continues um, to pursue the legislative process, who should be in charge of oversight? Because there's no detail at the moment from what I can see as to who would be responsible for oversight in the space, whether it would be police or the security agencies or NetSafe, for example, because, of course, these laws would very much cover speech that was published online. For these to be effective, who do you think would have to be in charge? Uh, well, we're talking about the hate speech mm. crime. Well, that's going to be the police. I mean, anyone can complain to the police, and I suppose you could bring private prosecutions. But in the first instance, it's the police, which actually leads to another irony, because if you are a person who believes that society and its institutions, mm. such as police and the courts, are prejudiced against um, minorities, then I'm not sure why you would expect those same institutions to apply this law in a way that mm. you would like it to. You've written some pretty extensive posts uh, on the on the law as it's presented in the discussion document so far. What sort of conversations have you had with your legal colleagues? How, how has this been received in the legal community? Right, look, you know, the main thing in the legal community is we're tearing out our hair, such as, it, such as it, it's left, um, at the quality of the debate, because it keeps getting sidetracked onto whether or not it might be hate speech to call the Prime Minister a dictator. Prime Minister isn't a group, for one thing, or, or to say that the leader of the opposition is a Karen. Um, everybody with their own agenda seems to have picked up this hate speech thing and just used it to pursue their own bandwagon, and, and it's frustrating. Um, but doesn't that speak to the ambiguity of, of the issue, though? Yes, in part it is. Mm. And there is, of course, a danger of overreach with this sort of a law. It might be used in ways that aren't anticipated and that are actually going to do more harm than good. Um, absolutely right. But I, I feel like we haven't... At the, I feel like the country has not yet got to a place where we can say, well, look, 
we need to understand from the communities who are suffering from these harms what these harms are, what the evidence of it is, so that we can mm. then go, what is the best solution to that? My hunch is it's probably not the criminal law. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. We really, really appreciate your insights. And we will put some links up to Stephen's writing uh, on this subject on our Facebook page. Thanks, Jack. Coming up, we've got a Kiwi bank. Is it feasible to develop something similar with supermarkets? Retail grocery sector can best be described as a duopoly with a fringe of other competitors. We don't consider that New Zealand is too small to accommodate a third grocery retailer of sufficiently large scale to compete with the major grocery retailers. But nevertheless, there's been no large-scale entry over time, and we consider it highly unlikely that a new grocery retailer at the, at the scale that is required to compete is likely to enter the New Zealand market without some form of intervention. That was Anna Rawlings from the Commerce Commission presenting the preliminary findings from their investigation into supermarket competition or the lack thereof. The Food and Grocery Council wants to see supermarkets introduce a code of conduct for suppliers but as you just heard, the report also suggests increasing competition with a state-owned supermarket chain. Catherine Ritt from the Food and Grocery Council is with us this morning. Tēnā thank you for your time. Thank you, Jack. Your members have had a couple of days now to digest the report. What feedback have they given you? It's a massive report over 500 pages, but it's an accurate reflection of the state of grocery in New Zealand. We don't have enough competition. Um, certainly there are areas that the government can intervene, but there are also some easy steps that would make a difference for consumers and suppliers next week. Has the Commerce Commission been sufficiently critical in your eyes? I think the Commerce Commission's given a very uh, accurate reflection. There's a huge amount of work that they've done. They've done um, a terrific amount of analysis. They've shown that supermarkets in New Zealand are more profitable than expected, and, and they sheet that home to a lack of competition. So we agree with a lot of the points the Commission's made, but also it's time for New Zealand to discuss um, what are some of those changes that mm. will make a difference. A code's part of that. Yeah, let's, talk, let's talk about the Code of Conduct then. How would that improve conditions for consumers? A Code of Conduct makes business relationships more transparent. Australia's had a code since 2015, UK since 2009. And what that means is that um, in terms of the rules for supplying supermarkets, uh, that, uh, that, that, that there are some rules. At the moment, for example, a supplier can give money to a supermarket for the intention of a promotion to go to go to consumers and that money's not passed on. That's one of the important points that the Commerce Commission made, that in many cases discounts squeezed from suppliers do not get passed through to consumers. So that's one area that a code could cover. Also things like asking suppliers to pay for theft in the store, um, display fees when they get no displays and a whole mm. host of other behaviour that um, it, it needs to be improved. There, there are obvious ways in which, in which a code of conduct would benefit suppliers but as someone just strolling through the supermarket you know, aisles, how much of a difference would that make in my life? Well, if there was greater competition, you would get lower prices because the margins of the supermarkets would, mm. would be reduced. One of the things the Commission's report said quite clearly is that um, the supermarkets are more profitable than you would expect 
vis-a-vis -vis other businesses, but also compared to other supermarkets around the world. So if you had more competition, you would have more opportunities to uh, places to shop, and there would be more price competition between the supermarkets themselves. That's why we think things uh, op options um, to consider are things like uh, breaking up the foodstuffs model you know, separating out the new world and the pack and saves. But in particular, making sure that if a supplier is giving a really sharp discount to the supermarkets, that they just don't pocket it, that they pass it on to consumers. Yeah, right. So let's talk about some of those really big suggestions in the, in the Commerce Commission report. How difficult would it be at the moment, with current market conditions as they are, for a third party to come into that? Look, I think the uh, arrival of an LD or another in, uh, independent from overseas is some way off, but um, there are things that can happen to, to, tomorrow mm. that would make a difference. There are new online retail, retailers like The Honest Grocer and Soupy. Um, the first thing the, the government could make quite clear is that the current supermarkets should not pressure suppliers not to supply those new entrants. Another option is for the warehouse the warehouse to step up its grocery offering, which I think would make a big difference. But also, um, I, I think in terms of the, the foodstuffs model uh, and perhaps with the, the large buying groups you have, breaking those apart and having, uh, you know, creating uh, a number of other, other uh, entities in New Zealand would be a step. I don't think we're at the stage of a Kiwi shop or a gov the government getting into the ownership of supermarkets, but there are ways the government can facilitate the entry of an independent. We need an independent. So why not? Why not a Kiwi market? Look, in terms of, um, it's, it's a big deal if the government was going to uh, start to own supermarkets. I mean, that happened in Venezuela and, and the, the outcome wasn't, wasn't great. Um, I don't I think the government... We're not Venezuela. I mean... No, I'm saying the government doesn't need to own it, but the government can create a legal, uh, a regulatory framework mm. where competition can be increased. And that's why there's a suite of responses is needed. I mean, the government's changing the Fair Trading Act, they've changed mm. the Commerce Act, um, but also a mandatory code of conduct for grocery will make it um, better for suppliers and for consumers as well. But, but what, so what, what is your opposition to a state-owned government though, one that just operates as a, effectively as a state-owned enterprise? Well the Commission has um, put put um, that as an option. Hmm. Um, we're not saying, we're, we're, not a, we're not opposed to it, that's certainly not, not our position. What we're saying is we need an independent additional retailer to come into New Zealand mm. and not just that I mean the warehouse is rolling out an increased offering in grocery there are other other entities in New Zealand that could step up you see the thing that's stopping competition in New Zealand is the fear of what the two supermarkets will do if you supply other retailers mm. and we're seeing that now with the new online entry so the government could own but more importantly, there are other retailers right now who could step up their grocery offering, and that would be better for consumers to provide more choice. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in this government-owned suggestion because it came from the Commerce Commission, and I realise that it may be pie-in-the-sky thinking, and, and that once we see the final report, that suggestion may even be removed. But wouldn't a government-owned option, you know, have have the possibility of being run like a collective, for example, or a non-for-profit model that would really benefit consumers? 
Well, a not-for-profit model uh, would benefit consumers, particularly some of our poorest families, who would be better off if some of the pack-and-saves passed on some of those discounts that I know my, our suppliers are giving to those stores. Yeah. Um, Look, there are different ways of handling this. I think the Commission's done a really good job providing the government with a smorgasbord of options. Mm. And, um, you know, we thank them for painting a very accurate picture of the market. I know some have said, look, this report doesn't tell us anything uh, that wasn't already known. I disagree with that because what this does is provide the data and the information that proves once and for all that the New Zealand market is the most concentrated in the world and the most profitable, and, and we need to make some changes. Catherine, just talk to us a little bit more about, about what would be the impact of separating the wholesale businesses, or vertically separating the wholesale businesses from the store networks for the, for the two big operations. The Commission's made clear that one of the weaknesses in the New Zealand market is the lack of wholesale options. Mm. And um, certainly if you were to break apart um, parts of the current supermarket um, regime right now, there would be different options. So from a supplier perspective, it would mean that there would be a greater chance for food and grocery manufacturers mm. and growers in this country to be able to negotiate with the supermarkets. So many suppliers right now are price takers. The supermarket will say, accept this or you're out. And you know, I spoke to a, a strawberry grower uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he was he's paid the same for a punnet of strawberries uh, today as he was 45 years ago. Now there are some suppliers, uh, the food and grocery producers that make up our wonderful food industry, who just don't get a fair opportunity to make normal profits, and it's because they're, they're price mm. takers. Have you heard from the supermarkets since the report was released? In terms of the supermarkets themselves, uh, no, I haven't. I have heard from intermediaries that they're not very happy with comments that we have made, but it is our job to be an advocate for suppliers, and in the long term, I think it's for the benefit of consumers as well. well consumers should be able to get cheaper groceries simply by squashing those margins of the supermarkets because it's far too profitable and there's not enough competition. So what, what have you been told? Um, I've been told it's war, uh, which is uh, quite quite daunting. I mean, our, my job um, in running this, the Food and Grocery Council is to uh, be an advocate, to be an advocate for suppliers and to tell their stories mm. because they're not in a position to do so. Journalists often tell me they try and get suppliers on the record to tell their stories. People are too scared to speak to you. Mm. People are too scared to tell their stories for fear of being delisted. Is it war? It's not a war, it's a debate, and it's a debate about competition, it's a debate about fair prices for New Zealanders, and it's a debate about what we need to have a flourishing food and grocery manufacturing base. You know, I've run this organisation for 13 years, and I've been worried about those suppliers who have gone to the wall, because it makes no sense to, uh, you know, they, they can't um, uh, survive. But also, uh, in terms of the prices on shelf now, it's disheartening when suppliers give good prices to the supermarkets and there's not enough of a pass through to consumers in terms of those lower prices. And that's where the margins are fat. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Catherine. We really appreciate it and look forward to the final report being released later this year. That's Catherine Rich from the Food and Grocery Council.
Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, q and at tvnz.co.nz. Our panel is here after the break. And then later, ahead of this afternoon's official apology, the legacy of the Dawn Raids. We welcome back to Q&A and welcome to our panel this morning, academic and writer Emmeline Pickering-Martin, former National Staffer Ben Thomas and former Labour MP Sue Maroney. So much to discuss. We haven't had a good panel in a few weeks. The question on everyone's lips, how about them black ferns? Hey, Fijiana! <laughs> um, let's, start with, let's start with the hate speech legislation. So submissions closed this week on the draft um, document that has been published. Do you understand what is being proposed, Emmeline? Um, I understand parts of it, um, but it's very, very broad for me, and I'm just still kind of trying to figure out which parts go where. Ben, do you understand what's being proposed? Yeah, I don't think it's difficult to understand in the broad terms that it's been outlined. You know, what we really need to know is how the authorities who actually oversee and police this, which will be the New Zealand police, actually interpret a lot of these words which don't have a legal meaning, you know, that we understand, you know, mm. in terms of hate, uh, you know, stir up, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of uncertainty around that. They will take their cues uh, from the legislation, but also from, you know, the intent of the politicians. As we heard from Stephen Price, you know, th these new laws may actually raise the threshold uh, of the current laws under which there are almost no prosecutions. So what the government is doing is sending a signal to the police that they want, you know, and to the judiciary, that they want mm. a bit more activism around this uh, or a bit more activity around this. You know, that's, that's an important part of passing a law by itself. And we've seen clues as to how the police may interpret some of those words, you know, when uh, Rachel Stewart, the, the um, <laughs> public figure who got her, uh, you know, guns temporarily taken away, the police were very clear. They said, you know, we've looked at, you know, your hateful tweets. So we're getting clues about what the police will see as hateful as reaching these thresholds mm. for these laws. Uh, meanwhile, Chris Farfoy is, I guess, tied up in a basement somewhere by the Prime Minister's staff and not allowed to do interviews. Um, but we're not getting any direction from the Beehive. Yeah, this is the, this is the thing. It, it, to me, going through the draft document and the Cabinet paper that has been released, I mean, clearly there is language that I think a lot of people w would support, not everyone necessarily, but it, there is no real clear definition for where that threshold lies. Well, it's always the case with the new law, though, isn't it? I mean, that's why we have case law. That pretty much every new law will go through a process where there is case law established from that. So this is no different. What I find really interesting about this debate is that we don't have any problem with um, defamation laws, for example, mm. which are normally around, you know, reputation um, of, of pretty wealthy people, quite frankly. Um, but when it comes to actually protecting minorities and some of the most vulnerable in our society through this type of law, then suddenly people find it too hard. Um, you know, I think that's a, really, that's a really interesting part of this debate and I, I don't think it's actually realistic. It's not right that we accept defamation, which is quite hard mm. to prove also, on one hand, but we say we don't want to accept this. Um, I think as a society, that's just the wrong frame for New Zealand to be in. What do you make of the debate so far? 
I think the debate has been um, largely driven by people's ideological response mm. to this issue more than the technicalities, and it's been driven Which up as being around the question of threshold, right? Which is why, for something like this, I wonder if perhaps it would be easier if the government would be drawn on specific examples and would try and define that threshold a little more clearly, so that people knew exactly what they were debating. Well, yeah, that's for case law to do, though, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the well, in a, in, case in a law. way, it is, but at the same time. You know, that a judge's job is to interpret the intention right. of mm. Parliament. Now, if Parliament isn't giving any kind of clues but or giving anything away, they about haven't had what the they... debate yet, Ben, and that's when, that's what judges look at. They look at the debate speeches in Parliament when the law goes through. That's what they use to interpret what the intention of Parliament was. So that process is all still to come, and that's when those determinations mm. will be made. Mm. Yeah, I just think in terms of the corridor that's gone around publicly, um, people have just been too comfortable for too long saying really horrible things about minority groups, about people they don't understand or don't have lived experience with. And so we're coming without any guidance from the government at this point. We're coming into this conversation kind of blind and everyone's just been so comfortable doing what they do. And it's now that we're in the space where we can call people out and say, actually, that's really mm. racist or that's mm. really harmful to our trans community or, you know, those sorts of things. They're like, oh, wait, but I've done this my whole life. And it's just people being uncomfortable and then fighting against something because they're uncomfortable. What do you think of the political risks in this? Well, the, the political risk is that you get into this kind of quote-unquote culture war area, um, which the government... Well, already there. And, 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 the, and the Prime Minister has been very assiduous in avoiding. Mm. You know, that's, that her brand is not getting involved in these kinds of, these kinds of stouches. Um, it, it obviously gives a political opportunity to act. It, you know, in theory, it gives a political opportunity to mm. National, but I think that they've been a bit slow on it. ACT are able to talk a lot more sort of black and white. Um, you know, they've been a lot more consistent on these issues throughout the years and uh, seem more probably a little agile, more agile in terms of getting on top of the debate. So, you know, there, there is that sort of risk. There is the risk of, you know, the middle voters who, you know, are, are worried about sort of political correctness or mm. wokeness or whatever you call it these days. Where they, where you know, and, and what they hear from the government silence is, we're going to make some things that you say illegal, but we're not going to tell you which ones. Well, here's a and and, that, and that's the sort of uncertainty and suspicion, and and that's the kind of uncertainty and the kind of you know grappling with a new world, which is where you know, as, yeah. as Emma Lane is talking about, that makes a lot of. You know, middle New Zealanders feel a little uncomfortable. Well, here's, here's a tip for middle New Zealanders. If you think that what you're about to do or say or tweet might actually be hate speech and might be captured by this law, don't do it. Yeah. And then we'll all be better off. Because, you know, it's, it's not actually it's a really hard call. Yeah. If, you're, if you're making that judgment, gosh, could this be illegal, don't do it. Yeah. Let, me ask, let me ask about the nurses. Um, so the nurses have rejected the government's latest offer, strike set down for this month and next month at the moment, although that could obviously change. Uh, the government put forward what I think would generally acknowledged as fairly significant pay rises, um, but the working conditions clearly haven't met the union's standards or the members' standards. Sue, what are your thoughts? 
Oh, look, I used to work for this union, um, and so I've been watching this space for a long time and been really dismayed, particularly over that period of the John Key government, about the, the minimal wage increases and no attention to the growing staff issues, staffing level issues that were occurring during that government. And so what's landed now is a frustration from, that's been building up for a long period of time. And you saw the Labor government come in and actually give the largest wage increase that nurses have had for quite some time, mm. 10 to 12% over three years. Um, but still the staffing issues weren't getting addressed. And this is the time that that has to happen. I mean, to me, hearing that when the union was negotiating during that last half-day strike to keep the life-preserving levels of staff in place, and those were higher than what those wards normally mm. had on a day-to-day -day basis, that's an outrage. And, you know, the New Zealand public should not stand for that, and neither should the nurses. Why, did, why didn't the union put more pressure on Key's government? Well, I think you know, that's a question really for the union leadership at the time and, and you know, making sure, understanding mm. that the union leadership is responding to nurses themselves and, and what they're demanding or accepting or, or not. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I feel that the lesson is that you've got to keep those consistent wage increases mm. coming because otherwise it just banks up and it becomes um, something that's almost unfixable. And the level of frustration now for nurses, I mean, I, I've always been of the view that you cannot pay mm. A nurse enough money to turn up into an environment where they know they cannot deliver quality care day in and day out. That's just excruciating for mm. nurses and that's why they're having real trouble recruiting. Yeah, we all know a nurse, like I'm pretty sure everybody knows a nurse, and what, what do we see in them? So we'll see like overworked, very tired, can't do their job safely, um, being paid not enough ever. But um, so that's not even encouraging our young people to look at that as a career. And if we're looking for workforce development in the future and we're trying to get those staffing levels to a level that is a little bit safe, mm. we need to be encouraging more people to come into the profession. And then, yeah, just to, we all see how burnt out nurses are. I don't, I don't see why they can't just be given what they're asking for. It's interesting to look at the relationship between Andrew Little, the Health Minister, and the unions at the moment. I see him talking to members directly on mm. Twitter, mm. publishing videos to them saying, this is what your union suggested. Well, well I, I think this is the issue, isn't it? The, the, this was the union's proposal, which the government agreed to, and then the members rejected. So w what role does the union have in this now? You know, they don't seem to have a lot of credibility on either side. Um, you know, <laughs> it may, may be, you know, Little has to talk to the members uh, mm. directly. You know, there, there is this issue in terms of, you know, the pay thing in particular. You know, we're a low-wage economy mm. compared to, you know, comparable Western countries. Um, we, we can't compete money-wise with Australia. And, you know, it, it is unfortunately unrealistic to expect that. Nurses are, you know, they're, they're reasonably well paid, maybe not compared to policy analysts, maybe not compared to government department managers, uh, but, you know, Ministry of Health officials, but compared to, you know, ev everyday people going and going to work, um, it, they're not exactly sort of, you know, on the breadline. Mm. It is a really interesting development seeing the Minister of Health speak directly to mm. nurses. Um, mostly politicians have done the opposite. They've distanced themselves mm. from contract negotiations and, um, and industrial relations. This is Andrew Little putting the government front and centre. Mm. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch how that actually plays out. The government is going to be bringing back Sahira Aden, uh, the woman who allegedly uh, moved to the Middle East to join the ISIS fight and her children. Do we have any options in this situation?
No, no, I don't believe we did. Um, the Australians have acted appallingly, mm. as they have um, over um, over the de deportation of New Zealand citizens from Australia as well. They're just continuing to do this, and I, I don't think that the bilateral approach that New Zealand continues to take with Australia is it's demonstrably not working because their behaviour is getting worse and worse in this whole area. Ben? Yeah. Um you know, <laughs> all, all, you know we, we have a large swathe of people who become criminals or become radicalised in Australia um, and then become our problem, according to the Australian government. And look, it's a little bit on the nose when New Zealanders, um, you know, have to buy scalped tickets from bots to even get into MIQ to get back into their home countries that we're paying to repatriate sort of ISIS brides. Um, but again, yeah, there's not really an alternative. I see Judith Collins flirting with the idea of introducing an Australian-style law that would automatically strip someone of their citizenship if they went overseas to join a terrorist organisation or a fight. Do you think that is a good idea? Well, you know, it, trying to be like the Australians, I don't think, is, is a good idea in this space. <laughs> um, you know, we're actually on the right side of this, and but what we've got to do is we've got to take that to the international audience more, because um, we are reluctant to do that. Well, the government seems mm. reluctant to take that to the international audience about Australia's behaviour. Um, no, I don't believe that um, that uh, that most New Zealanders would find that the, the palatable response from our government. I, yeah, I, I don't think this. I think we've. If there's one thing we've figured out over the last 20 years, it's that creating more stateless people doesn't solve terrorism. No. No, that's right. Um, let's talk about vaccinations before we wrap up today. So uh, the first people in Group 4 have been able to book their vaccinations now. According to the latest numbers, about 30% of frontline workers still haven't had their second dose. Just 12% of Group 3 have had both doses. Auckland's three DHBs had done about 28,000 fewer vaccines than planned, but that was before yesterday's mass vaccination event in which 14,000 people in South Auckland were vaccinated. Where do you put the vaccination process at the moment, Emma? Uh, it's a little bit slow, and it's missing out on key kind of um, communities, and there's sort of no... Um process or no policy around comms to those communities or how to reach them and um, obviously that affects Māori and Pacific communities hugely um, and so what I guess I'd like to see or would be some good policy around communication and educating and getting out into the rural areas um, or even with our homeless um, whanaunga our street whanaunga they, they all need um, information and help as well and so I think we're kind of missing the mark a tiny bit. Okay Ben? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the issue, isn't it? Uh, the mass vaccination event, you know, looked very good. At the same time, they just keep casting the net wider and wider and wider to fill up those slots. At this stage, it's too early to tell if, if the vaccination rollout is a success because the people who are getting the vaccinations are the ones who are motivated, who were probably going to get them anyway. That's not what we care about. We know we'll get up to, you know, 60%, 65%. We need to get up to 85 90%. Mm. And that's going to be about getting those hard-to-reach communities, not necessarily anti-vaxxers, but people who aren't aware, who aren't you know, kept informed, who are a little hesitant, who have got questions. In the developing world, you know, it's <laughs> the, you know the because they don't have you know uh, convenient web-based solutions to this sort of thing. And just like we used to for our census mm. before we developed easy-to-use websites, we had people boots on the ground going door to door, mm. and you can map every household in New Zealand, and you could tell who had, you know, in that case filled out their census, and in this case had a vaccine, was intending to get a vaccine, needed a vaccine, booked. 
political parties know how to do that during election campaigns. They can have every house in their electorate covered and everyone's <laughs> intentions marked down. And there's no reason that we can't do that and that it'll probably be necessary to get to those numbers we need. All right, we've got to wrap up. So we're on a strict time limit today because I don't know if you've heard, but the Olympics are on at the moment and we've got to make sure we stick to time so we get to that. Thank you so much, guys. Emma Lyon, Ben and Sue. After the break, it's been exactly 50 years since a group of Kiwi University students were sent into what was then China's great unknown. We, we were the first European to be, to be seen by so many people. You know, we, we'd go into, out onto the street or uh, uh, a traffic jam would form. Hōki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. It's the 1st of August, exactly 50 years to the day since an extraordinary event in the history of diplomacy between China and New Zealand. On this day in 1971, 20 New Zealand university students embarked on an all-expenses-paid trip to the People's Republic of China, funded by the Chinese government. It was at a time when China was only just beginning to open up to the world, when Kiwis were questioning the status quo and flirting with different political philosophies. The Great Wall at a time of great change. These pictures, recorded on grainy film in 1971, show a post-revolution China in a moment of great upheaval. There was generally throughout New Zealand and in the Western world a questioning of, of the values that had permeated our social life. And to some extent, um, socialism, China, offered an alternative yeah, this is, uh, this is down on the Bund uh, in Shanghai under the watchful eye of the chairman now. Frank Hogan was one of 20 Kiwi University students chosen for the excursion. None of us went overseas in those days, certainly during our studies. We'd be given the opportunity of, of accessing this vast nation um, as guests of the, of the People's Republic of China and to be shown their schools, their factories, their communes, their countryside, their cities and and, and to be uh, introduced to the approach to living was, was, was an opportunity that was an enormous, enormous privilege. Were you interested in communism at the time? Uh, broadly, broadly, yes. The, the group was, was, was a widespread uh, interest, both personal, political, and um, our studies were, were, were diverse. But it's fair to say that when we were activists. We were, we, we, we were involved in student affairs, so primarily the direction was left wing, but it wasn't exclusively. The group made headlines when they were selected, with several students who would later become well-known faces in New Zealand. Former Deputy Prime Minister David Cagill, former Trade Minister Tim Grocer, and the late Māori leader Piti Shasha, who took his film camera and recorded the adventure. What was in it for the Chinese authorities? Well, that's a fair question at that, that time, and I think it, it possibly was. that they, they were teasing out the idea of, of how the West might respond to coming into their country? How, and how would they relate when they went back to their own communities, their own countries, and, and reported? It, it was just that um, toe in the door. After starting in Hong Kong, the Kiwi students headed to the mainland, Shanghai and Beijing, before heading inland to China's interior. It was a kaleidoscope of different experiences, but it was people just getting by, you know, just functioning and, and making their daily lives tolerably successful. There was harmony. It was integrated. People had a, a sense of purpose. 
they weren't, didn't have much in the way of consumer goods, they had the basics, but they, there was no emphasis on, on acquisition of, of, of goods. It was more what they, the, the tension was, purity of thought, purity of, of effort, purity of commitment to, to the revolution. Certainly the food was different, you know, like, certainly for a good old Kiwi diet, you know, things were pretty straightforward, basic in New Zealand at that time in terms of the food side of things, but the food was magnificent. We, we had freedom to wander around the streets wherever we went. We, we weren't restricted in terms of where we went. We, we were certainly taken to places, and they, were, they no doubt took us to their pride and joy and some of the best examples, but when we were in a city or a village or a town, we were free. Uh, for the rest of the day or evening to walk about. The film makes for a fascinating study of China's transition. Much of it focuses on aspects of everyday life, all of it under the watchful eye of Chairman Mao. We acknowledged that it was the Communist Party that was running the show and they, were, they had a philosophy that they were trying to implement. Whether or not there were some costs in terms of human freedoms and, and the like, that was a fair point to be made. For the local people there, you must have been an incredible novelty. We, we were the first European to be, be seen by so many people. You know, we'd, we'd go into, out onto the street or, uh, and, and a traffic jam would form. You know, the vehicles would stop and, and want, just people would, they'd just stop. Was anything off limits? I mean, you, you, you visited re-education camps. They were quite open about how they, they regarded some of their middle managers as having strayed from the, the true revolutionary path. So they would, they would be gathered up and taken mostly out into the countryside. And these guys, mainly guys they were, were going out for a time of re-education. Now, whether or, not it's, whether or not it was entirely voluntary or whether or not there was some coercion or whether or not there were, you know, these are fair questions. We would go there and we would, we would interact with these people who would confess some of their shortcomings of how they'd performed in their management and leadership. The New Zealanders spent a month in China. Upon their return, they met with Prime Minister Sir Keith Holyoke to brief him on what they'd seen. Most of them had mixed impressions, and for Frank Hogan, it fuelled a lifelong curiosity. You've been back to China a few times since that first trip. You've travelled right across the country. How different is it today from in 1971? Well, you've heard of chalk and cheese. The, the China today is, is, is vastly different. People aren't different, but how it's reflected, how they um, devote their energies to what pursuits are different, and, and the contrast with China is, is, is remarkable. Frank Hogan. 50 years since that trip, the group has reunited for the first time to mark the anniversary. Here is a photo of everyone gathering in Wellington. Tell you what, looking back at that old photo, I never knew that Tim Grosser was the missing member of The Who. <laughs> After the break, what does today's Dawn Raids apology mean for young Pacifica? It's an apology for the mistake and, that, and the problems that's been caused, but then again, actions speak louder than words. Kia ora te welcome back. This afternoon, the government will apologise to the Pacific community for the dawn raids, the immigration policy that led to racial targeting of Pacific people in the 1970s. 
Indira Stewart visited Mangere College to ask the next generation of Pacifica what they think about the dawn raids and what changes they want to see follow the apology. I don't really feel like a lot of people grasp like what's, what other people have gone through to be on the, like where we are right now. Up until this year, these students knew very little about the dawn raids, a painful part of New Zealand's history for Pacifica. When we watched this video in our English class about it, um, I was trying not to cry because <laughs> these people are like, it's like, it felt like they were like my family. Uh, I thought it was pretty bad that New Zealand actually had a racist past and that essentially the government hired all these people to come over here just to end up wanting to send them all back. I've just felt really sad and like surprised that it happened to New Zealand and to our people as well. More than 80% of Mangere College's school population are Pacifica, and staff advocated to have the dawn raids included in the school's curriculum. Funds raised through social media helped more than 120 of its students visit the dawn raid exhibition in Auckland. These students say they were blown away when they learned about the youth-led activist group, the Polynesian Panthers, who took a stand against the dawn raids in the 70s. These people were fighting for what they believed in and making a whole movement which would change the country for this day. And then it's also weird to think that like, they were my age, probably doing the same thing I'm doing right now, except they had to fight for their rights to be here. It's like they took upon the title of a warrior, being a warrior. I think it inspires me to like, stand up more for my culture and that. And like, if you see something wrong, you like speak up about it, you just don't let it go. You know, without people like Tingilaunis, Alektolefwa, Melani, I wouldn't be able to walk the streets freely, be comfortable in my own skin. And so it just makes me feel grateful. South Auckland is home to New Zealand's largest Pacific population, and many of the youth here say the issues that existed during the peak of the dawn raids still exist today. It's different how they, like, when they're trying to arrest, like, brown people, like, it's really rough, but when it's white people, they, like, treat them gently, just put, put on the handcuffs and stuff, but when it's brown people, they have to really, like, put them on the ground. It makes me feel unsafe in my own community, in a place where I'm supposed to feel safe, my own safe space. It's just surprising where I should feel at home isn't home. Despite the challenges these students are still facing, they represent a new generation of young Pacifica who are full of hope. Struggle's real, money's tight, but we've got so much potential. Uh, I was looking at becoming a biochemical engineer, so I started studying at the University of Auckland. Entrepreneurship is somewhere we should be owning businesses, sitting at tables. Sitting at tables where we make policies is like where we belong as well. I have dreams of becoming a lawyer where I want to go and grab that knowledge and share it upon our people. The Dawn Raid apology will go a long way towards helping New Zealand's Pacific community heal from the past. But there's still a lot for the New Zealand government to do when it comes to building trust. I feel like it's just words. And I hope that this apology is um, more than just words. Yeah, it's an apology for the mistake and, that, and the problems that's been caused. But then, again, actions speak louder than words. I feel like an apology is not just is not enough. Apologise and act on it.
And Dara Stewart and the incredible kids at Mangere College. Of course, we'll have full coverage of the apology on One News at 6 tonight. For now, though, kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. Nga mihi kia koutui, nga karere. Thank you for your contributions. Marae is up next. The Olympics are at midday. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.